What's up? Hope you guys are having a great day today. Welcome back for another episode of the Matthew Spazzitti program where we talk about financial freedom and economics. Guys, if you are new to the show, first and foremost, I want to say welcome. And I want to ask you guys to take the 10 episode challenge. Ladies and gentlemen, what is the 10 episode challenge? That is basically where you go back and you listen to the last 10 episodes. Uh, Pretty self-explanatory, nothing too complicated there. And the reason I'm asking you guys to do that is ultimately because, you know, I feel like there's a lot of value in the last 10 episodes. I feel like there's a ton of value in in the previous episodes that I've done. And I'm going to be referencing stuff that ultimately you guys aren't even going to know about if you don't go back and you listen to the last 10 episodes or at least listen to more than the last 10, you know, whatever you want to listen to more, more power to you. But look, we don't talk about news and economic data, whatever we're talking about, we don't talk about it in a vacuum, right? So if you guys want to know what I'm talking about, what I'm referring to, and you want to get the most value out of the show, you really need to go back and listen to the last 10 episodes. That being said, guys, hope you guys are having a great day today. I hope you guys aren't stressing out too much about the election and the the fact that we still it's still being contested and everything. It's absolutely been insane. I've been following it very closely, or as closely as I possibly can, and for Frankly, I don't care one way or the other. Yes, I do think that one candidate is probably better than the other. I think that Trump would be better than Biden, even though marginally, so in the smallest amount. But neither one of them are for freedom. Neither one of them are for liberties, right? Neither one of them are going to promote liberty, freedoms, and free markets or and, and no wars and stuff of that nature. They're going to continue to print money like crazy. They're going to continue to try to prop up the economy. It, it doesn't really matter. You know, I, I don't, yeah, a lot of people are saying, but if, if Biden gets elected, then he's going to do all these other horrible things. He's going to mandatory vaccines, another lo- national lockdown, mandatory mask mandates across the entire country. You know, all these, you know, raising taxes, all this kind of stuff. And in the end, some of that may be true. Some of it may more have just been fake, pro- empty promises for the purposes of campaigning. We, we don't really know. In the end, we won't know until we figure out who's actually going to win. And then we'll know what kind of policies they were actually engage, uh, intending on actually engaging in. But the fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, I mean, a lot of people feel comfortable more with Trump because they already know what to expect from Trump. Whereas Biden, you know, he's got Kamala Harris. She's, she's a very, very progressive VP, a very, very progressive woman. And she probably would take over for Biden in the event that Biden did get elected because he has a lot of mental issues and stuff, but that may not happen. You know, nobody knows, nobody knows. You know, I was actually thinking that Trump was going to win. Now, with all the cheating and everything that's going on, now I'm not entirely sure. Um, it's up in the air, you know? The jury is out, you know? I, I don't really know who's going to win at this point. You know, with, with the amount of brazen fraud that's going on, I'm kind of thinking Biden will pull it out because even if, if all of this stuff ends up going to the Supreme Court or it goes to Congress, either way, I don't see that as being helpful or beneficial to Trump in one way or the other. I I, I just don't. So I, I think that if regardless of 
any kind of lawsuits or anything that does happen, I just don't see Trump winning now. I think he got cheated out of the election. I don't think it was fair. But hey, I mean, let's be honest. They both parties cheat, okay? Republicans cheat and Democrats cheat. In this instance, though, it seems that Democrats cheated a lot more than Republicans did. And it was very, very clear. But look, you know, the reason I'm mentioning all this is because in the end, this is just another reason. And I've said this in the past couple episodes. So go back and listen to those. But this is just another reason why voting doesn't matter. Why the Democratic process is nothing more than an illusion, right? I mean, yeah, it's just, it just is. Regardless of who gets elected, they want to create turmoil. They want to create chaos. They want to create controversy. Why? Because it keeps you distracted from what's really going on in this country. Economically speaking, it keeps you distracted from a lot of different things that are actually happening. It really does. And it's not a good thing, ladies and gentlemen. When you're so wrapped up in the idea of one president getting elected over the other, and neither one is really all that good and all that, you know, you, you lose sight of what's really going on. You start to think that it all hinges on the presidency. It all hinges on this. And that's simply, ladies and gentlemen, it's just not true. It doesn't all hinge on the presidency, okay? The fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, is that the whole thing is an illusion. The whole thing is ultimately a scam. It's to keep you guys fighting to keep you guys arguing. I mean, I, I think I've used this this example before in the past, and uh, I'm going to use it again because I think it's kind of funny. You know, I, I think of it like uh, Tom and Jerry, right? If you guys ever watched old classic cartoons, which they're really not that old, but still, if you ever watched the classic cartoons, you got Tom and Jerry. Tom is a is a cat, and Jerry is the mouse, right? And they're constantly fighting. Uh, you, you know, Tom is always trying to catch Jerry and all this kind of stuff. But there were some episodes where there was a bulldog in the episode, and Jerry would pit the bulldog against Tom. Now, I don't remember the bulldog name, okay? I don't remember his name, but the fact of the matter, he would pit one against the other, and then the cat and the dog would argue and fight and chase each other, all the while, you know, Jerry got to sit back, you know, sip his lemonade, or sometimes the episode ended there with him basically just winning the day, right? And it, Now, occasionally, there were times where Tom and the dog basically effect, realized that Jerry was basically, you know, manipulating them, and then they went after him, but for the most part, it almost always played out in Jerry's favor, at least from what I remember as a kid watching these these cartoons. And hey, if, if you haven't seen them in a long time, I highly recommend you go check them out on YouTube or any other, anywhere you could find them. They're really fun, you know, it's a great way to re relive your childhood and stuff like that. But ladies and gentlemen, that's how I view the politics and voting and all that kind of stuff. You see, you got the government which is effectively the mouse, you know, and he basically wants to pit one group of people, the Republicans, and I'm not talking about the politicians in, in the political party. I'm actually talking about the people that vote for them, right? The government, Jerry, the mouse, basically pits, you know, Republicans, which is, I don't know, pick the dog for the Republicans and the Democrats pick the cat, you know, pick Tom for the Democrats. And he's constantly pitting all of them together so that he can go eat cheese or do whatever he he's going to do, right? And he's constantly pitting them together all the while he's the one that's winning and they're both losing. But neither one of them see it that way. You know, so that being said, ladies and gentlemen, that is how I view it. I view it as, now I know it's kind of weird to think of the mouse as being the government. I mean, obviously that how 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 silly is that really but it, it's not out that that outlandish right they're, they're pitting us against each other they're pitting us to fight each other and in the end you really have no power you really have no say and what's going to happen in this country is going to continue to happen regardless 
of what happens in the presidency, regardless of what happens in government. You cannot affect it, ladies and gentlemen. Maybe if we got the people and we got enough people in the society to rise up and change it, possibly you might be able to change something. It's kind of like a monarchy, right? If In many ways, the monarch is ruling by, in a way, okay, in a way, by the consent of the people. Now, the people have not given their express consent. You know, the monarch is probably ruling by birthright or, you know, by bloodline, by lineage, right? But at the same time, if the people start to view the monarchy as illegitimate, for whatever reason, they can oust the monarch. This happened many times in history. You know, the monarch would only rule so long as his reign was seen as legitimate, and when the legitimacy of the monarch was called into question, all kinds of tumultuous things happened in that nation. And sometimes the king themselves was ousted. Either they brought another king that they liked better into there to have a war with that king, or maybe they they beheaded the king and, you know, basically rioted against him in the first place. Either way, ladies and gentlemen, this happens in monarchy as well. So that being said, there is a certain level of consent that the people have. Now, in democracies, one of the reasons I don't like democracies, and republics are just another form of democracy, okay? So when I say democracies, I'm also talking about republics just as well. Now, there are certain forms of, of republics that I like better than others. So if you had like an aristocracy or, you know, a, a republic that where the noblemen, the aristocracy votes for the king... And then that's who the king elects, and the king basically serves for a certain number of terms or serves for life or whatever. Okay, that is a form of a republic, which was actually a great example, Is a, was the Venetians' form of the republic. There were noblemen, the aristocracy effectively voted for the king, which was called the Doge. He was, I don't know if they actually classified him as a king, but he effectively was a king. He had absolute power, things of that nature. And, uh, and that was, that was it. It was the ruling class voted on the king and everyone else had very little say in it. And Venice lasted for 1100 years. And when Venice really became irrelevant, they kind of petered out slowly. It, they didn't have one big massive collapse or, or invasion, or at least not to my recollection, they didn't. Now, I'm still kind of researching it and everything, but what I'm learning is actually quite fascinating. In that kind of form of a republic, I'd be a bit more okay with. But still, even in that type of system, the people, the, the aristocracy still forgot what made the nation great. One of the things that they did was they made it a point to not get involved in foreign entanglements. And then over time, the nobility forgot about that and saw it as essential and important that they do engage in foreign entanglements. So they did, and that was kind of what led to the downfall of the, of the Venetian Empire and becoming uh, less relevant, let's say. So anyways, that said, that would be a form of a republic I'd be okay with, but still, because there's that essence of democracy, opinions can change and people can forget, and that's one of the biggest issues with democracy. But another reason why I don't really like democracy or republics is largely because, ladies and gentlemen, democracies have a tendency to, you know, it's seen as a public ownership of government. And it's seen as anybody can go and anybody can can throw their, their name in for, for an election, whether it's for the presidency, whether it's for a senator, whatever, you know, or, or maybe even on a local level, maybe you want to do mayor or governor or something of that nature, or 
maybe or what, what, what have you. That said, you know, because it's seen as a public ownership of it, and it's seen as the people are the ones that have the power and the people have the ones that can control it and manipulate, because that's how democracy and republics are seen, all kinds of terrible, egregious crimes against our liberties are justified. People look the other way. You know, I mean, even back during monarchical eight times, I think it was estimated that taxes never really went above five to eight percent of the income of its people. I mean, seriously, if that's true, that that's insanity, because I mean, how many of you would like five to eight percent taxes as opposed to say, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 percent, 25 percent, if not and more. I mean, seriously, and that's just one example of an egregious attack on our liberties. Does the lockdowns ring any bells? The idea that the government can tell you to to not leave your house? That's insane. Unprecedented. Never, ever occurred. Or at least to my knowledge, I don't think that ever happened before. Ladies and gentlemen, democracies are used to justify all kinds of, of tyrannical and dictatorial things. In fact, I would even say that democracy is, that the people become a form of a dictatorship. They do. Instead of having a dictator, an individual dictator, you have the people that end up becoming the dictator themselves. You know, this idea that democracy and republics were better than any other system, a monarchy, is, isn't anywhere near close to being true. It was all, it's all a lie. It's all false. And many of us have been indoctrinated to think that monarchy is literally just, you know, dictatorship. It's really just tyranny. Democracies and republics are the exact same thing. In the end, there's always going to be a ruling class. There's always going to be the rulers and those who are ruled. Okay? I talk about this stuff a lot because it's so important to me. Because I, I am a monarch, right? Or, or I'm, well, I'm not a monarch. I'm a monarchist. <laughs> Uh, if I was a king, that'd be pretty cool. But um, I don't really know if I'd want that over my head. But that said, I am a monarchist. I do support monarchy. Now, would I support a monarchy that controls the entire nation or or multiple countries? I mean, no, I, I wouldn't. I don't think that's a good idea. But if you're gonna have a centralized government that controls massive, massive quantities of land and country and entire countries and all the cultures, a king probably would be better than any kind of democratic or republic system that any man, any anybody would devise. It probably a king would more than likely be better. And in reality, I think that a king. The future of of America will actually be either a dictator or a king. And I do actually make a distinction between the two. And I've, I've mentioned this in the past. I don't remember how far back it was. I'll go ahead and, and kind of re, redefine it for, for those of you guys who are just joining me here for today. We're getting new listeners all the time. So, you know, what is the difference between a dictator and a monarch? A monarch is one who rules by hereditary line right? They do not believe in equality. They do not believe any, any, in any form of utopian society. They just believe that it is their right to rule. Sometimes they even called it as divine right. Now, I'm not trying to say whether or not divine right, I agree with that whole idea and whatnot. But what I am saying is they don't believe in inequality. How could they? They have absolute power. 
they clearly are, are, are highly advantaged more so than anyone else. So how could they possibly say things along those lines? How could they possibly, you believe in equality? You see, a monarch doesn't believe in a utopian, an egalitarian, utopian society, right? So that's one of the differences. The other difference is that a monarch owns the government. They own it. It is theirs. It is their birthright. It is their inheritance. It is theirs. It is their asset, their property. They own the government. They own the monopolistic use of force. And as a result of that, if they wanted to sell certain parts of the government off and actually receive the profits or the, the, the receipts, you know, the money from this, the, the, that sale, that transaction, they could do so. When they have children, they can pass the government down to their children. And as a result of this form of ownership, of this form of property, private property, it actually incentivizes the monarchs to behave, well, let's say in a better way than dictators, than uh, democracies, republics, any hybrid system thereof, right? The monarch has a direct incentive because they want to ensure that their asset maintains bringing in money, that their power is solidified. So there is a limit to how much they would abuse the people. Now, there have been many kings and queens in history that have forgotten this and they abused their people too much and it resulted in them being dethroned. So that does happen. Okay. And no, I'm not saying that monarchs are perfect. They're anything but perfect, right? They're humans. They're sinful, just like anybody else. They're fall they have the fallen nature of man, just like anybody else, right? And when I'm saying man, I don't mean just men, men and women, humanity. But that said, I do think that the incentive structure is set up to be different. Now, let's contrast that with dictators. Dictators don't own the government, okay? They don't, let's compare the second point. They don't own the government at all. While they are ruling for life, and while they do have virtually absolute power, they're only a permanent caretaker of the government, right? They don't own it. They can't pass it down to their children. Their goal is still to leech as much of it from it as they can. Now, they may set up their children very nicely through their leeching, through their theft, but in the end, it's they're still leeching because they don't own the government. It's not actually theirs. And to compare on the second point here, so, well, actually, uh, before we go on to the second point and compare the, the other points of, with regards to the ideological views of the monarchy versus dictatorship and all that kind of stuff, but before we do that, look, I mean, in the end, that makes a huge difference. Being a permanent caretaker is not the same as owning something. You still don't own it. You still are not incentivized. It's not your asset. It's not your property. You still are not fully incentivized to ensure that you take care of it the best, right? You're not incentivized to do that. No, you're just incentivized like all politicians are, even though that they're permanent, they're still incentivized to ultimately leech from it as much as as they possibly can. This is the incentive that every politician has. Now, some politicians don't do this. There are some politicians that don't actually, that are very, how would you say? They're, 
idealistic. They're, they're ideologues. They, um, I'm not sure if that's the correct, they're principled men and women, and they truly believe in the principles of liberty. And therefore they hold back and they, they try to serve as best for the people as they can. But nine times out of 10, this is not the case. And we're actually going to read two articles here that kind of talk about this with regards to the incentives of, of, of the politicians and, and stuff of that nature. There's one which is the will of the people is a myth. And then there's another, which is no matter how you vote, politicians don't represent you. And it, and, and they're pretty, they're very, very good. And we'll talk about those. But that said, let's go ahead and hop into the second point. The second point is that dictators usually are under some kind of utopian ideology. They got this utopian ideology, whether they are true believers or not is, is largely irrelevant. They either truly believe it or they are just using it as a way of getting power. Either way, they're operating and, you know, they're operating on some form of ideology, some egalitarian equality for, for all type of ideology, a utopian society that can't ever really happen. Now, I actually think that a lot of dictators don't necessarily believe that. They just use it to gain power and to leech from the system as much as they possibly can. But still, even then, they don't have the hereditary bloodline type of ideology, the way of thinking. They don't have that. They don't rule in that way. And like I said before, they also don't own the government. But the ideology, this utopian ideology, is a big difference that you don't see monarchs have at all. At least it's not very common, and if it does happen, it is possible for a monarch to descend into a dictatorship. It's all, you know, if they start adopting these, you know, utopian ideologies and things of that nature, if they don't want to actually own the government, it's possible for a monarch to become a dictator, in my view, and it's possible for a dictator to become a monarch. But, granted, the odds of a dictator becoming a monarch, you know, is not very is not very likely, let's just say that, but it is possible. And ladies and gentlemen, that's, those are the differences, right? So dictators, they're driven by a utopian ideology and they do, they're just permanent stewards of, or just permanent caretakers of the account of the government. They're not, they don't own it. Whereas the monarchs, they rule by bloodline. They, they rule by lineage and they also actually own the government outright. And that's the two differences and in, in the incentives that both of them have defines which one they are, whether they're a monarch or, or a, you know, a dictator. So anyways, that being said, this is a very, very passionate topic that I have for me. I mean, it, it's incredibly, incredibly passionate. I love this topic very, very much. And I, I just feel that so many people don't see it that way. And it's just, it, it's something that I really, it's a message that I really want to spread. You know, so I'm, I'm very, very passionate about it. And look, I mean, look at the situation today. I think that the ultimate history of America, the ultimate future, not history, I'm sorry, the ultimate future of America is going to be one of failure. This human experiment that people have talked about of democracy and letting the will of the people work is, 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 is going to result in failure, ladies and gentlemen. I absolutely believe that it will. And as a result of that, as it continues to fail, there will be people who will start to look for a reason as to why. They will start to look for answers. And I think the answer is to go back to monarchy. I think so. I think monarchs, some form of monarch or dictatorship is going to happen. 
So I think a monarch would be necessary to bring stability. But if it's a dictator instead, then they'll bring even more instability and more destruction in, in the entire, you know, com- country, really. So anyways, that said, ladies and gentlemen, you know, I know that there's a lot that's going on right now with the voting and every, and nobody really knows what's going to happen. I was predicting Trump was going to win, right? Let's kind of get back to that a bit. I, w- I was predicting Trump was going to win. And, but now with all the cheating, with now that everything's going on, I really don't know. <laughs> you know, as the data changes, I date, I change my opinions, right? You know, uh, that's the way anyone should be. If, if the data changes to say something different, then, you know, I don't think it's wrong at all to start saying, well, okay, I'm not really feeling the same way that I was before. This is something that we all do. It's all, it, it, it's perfectly fine. It's human nature, right? But the fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, it's just... It's not something that you should really worry about. I mean, I have had so many talks recently with so many people about voting and so I've had people tell me that if you don't vote, you don't have an opinion or you don't have the right to have an opinion. I'm like, okay, that's a terrible argument and <laughs> I'm going to have an opinion whether you like it or not. And and frankly, the vast majority of people do not vote in this nation. It's that That is simply just the truth. And so let's actually use that as a transition to go ahead and hop into this this article because that's what we're going to be talking about here. This article was written in 2016 by Ryan McMakin on the Mises Institute. And the title of the article is The Will of the People is a Myth. Okay? And it talks about how the vast majority of people don't vote. And that really, it's really a minority of people that actually do vote. And it's one uh, ideological minority versus another ideological minority. And basically, they're forcing the majority, they are forcing people, the majority, and they're telling them how to live. They're, they're enacting force on everybody else. Ladies and gentlemen, that's like, that's not okay. But anyways, let's go ahead and, re- and read the article. While it is rarely stated explicitly, the legitimacy of the modern American electoral system is founded on the idea of majority rule. Because of this, at the conclusion of each election, the victors claim the election reflected the will of the people and in many cases also claim a mandate to implement the victor's policy agenda. This has always been a tenuous claim in every in every way, of course. Within the American electoral system, there is no reason to assume that a vote for candidate X is an affirmative vote for candidate X's policy agenda. The voter's intent may be to simply choose a less bad option with the intent of voting against candidate Y. In fact, it is impossible to know the intent of the voters without interviewing every single one of them. And even then, the voters themselves may not remember why they voted the way they did or may simply lie about their intentions. Indeed, as recent polling data from Pew shows, voters routinely report voting against other candidates as a primary motivation rather than voting for the chosen candidate. Even if a voter is voting for candidate Y, it is impossible to know which aspects of that candidate's agenda meet the approval of the voters voting for that candidate. Thus, we're forced to conclude there is no basis for the claim that a vote for candidate X means voter approval of that candidate's agenda. Nor can we make any claims about the intensity of each voter's preference for the candidacy's policy agenda. A mere cast vote tells us very little, nor does the will of the people assertion take into account the fact that extremely few voters are involved in choosing the candidates that compete in the general election, as the New York Times pointed out this year, only 9% of Americans, 14% of eligible voters, voted for either Clinton or Trump in the primary process. 
Most voting age Americans don't vote for the winner. However, even if each vote for the victor were intended as uncritical approval of that candidate's agenda, the candidate likely remains a long way from actually obtaining votes from a majority of the voting population. Even less so does he or she receive majority approval from the population overall. In fact, if we look at the history of American presidential elections, we find that not only does the victor fail to achieve a majority, but he or she often can't even get a majority of votes from those who cast a vote. For instance, the 1984 election was the largest supposed blowout of the past 40 years. In that case, the victor, Ronald Reagan, won 58% of the votes cast in the popular vote. That is, among those who chose a candidate, 58% of them voted for Reagan. However, if we look at Reagan's 54 million votes in context of the full voting age population, we find that Reagan only obtained the approval of 31% eligible voters. A plurality of eligible voters, 47%, did not vote for either Reagan or Mondale in that contest, while 69% of eligible voters declined to vote for Reagan at all. And there's a really cool chart here that shows you the numbers and ultimately shows you the percentages associated. Other presidential contests show even less support for the victor. Indeed, for the 1992, 1996, and 2000 presidential races, the eventual victor did not even win a majority of votes cast. In 1992, Bill Clinton was declared president with only 43% of votes cast. In 1986, Clinton won re-election with only 49% of votes cast. In 2000, George W. Bush won with slightly under 48% of votes cast. Although he lost the election, Al Gore won the most votes with slightly over 48% of votes. The numbers are even less impressive when we look at the behavior of all voting age Americans. In 1992, for example, Clinton won votes from only 24% of the voting age population. 76% opted to not vote for Clinton. In 2000, both Gore and Bush won votes from only about 24% of the voting population. In 2012, the winner, Barack Obama, managed to win a majority of the votes cast with nearly 53% margin. However, Obama won votes from only 28% of the voting age population, meaning 72% of the voting age Americans did not vote for him. The numbers get worse still when we look at voting totals as a percentage of the overall population. After all, even children are subject to the effects of the laws, regulations, and wars brought to bear on a population by victorious candidates. When we look at the percentage of the overall American population that voted for Ronald Reagan in his 1984 blowout, the total comes to only 23% for the total uh, U.S. population for those that voted. In 1992, when Bill Clinton won the presidency, he received votes from 17% of the American population overall. All other presidential elections during this time period end simil similarly, with the victor receiving votes from about 18% to 23% of the overall population. And yet, even when an overwhelming majority of the population of eligible voters elects to not vote for the winning candidate, we are nevertheless routinely told that the victor has obtained a mandate and enjoys the imprimatur of the will of the people. The idea of the general will being expressed through elections has always been a myth. However, and even if a candidate were to obtain 100% of the votes cast, this would nevertheless tell us little about how exactly the electorate wished that candidate to govern. This fiction of the general will is then used to justify any number of usurpations and abuses of the voters under the guise of general approval having been achieved during the election, which is actually really a downside of democracy in general, right? You know, there, there's all kinds of 
of abuses and usurpations and stuff that are done. There's all kinds of stuff that's done like that. And people look the other way because it's like, well, you know, it's because of democracy, because it's easy to justify, because it's it's the people that voted them in, right? So this article, that's what it's attacking, the will of people myth. So anyways, even Ludwig von Mises, who, him, who was himself a Democrat, that is a supporter of the use of elections in political institutions, denied that elections could tell us about the general will. Moreover, Mises contended the idea had been responsible for justifying unlimited government power. Grave injury has been done to the concept of democracy by those who, exaggerating the natural law notion of sovereignty, conceived it as a limitless rule of the volante generale. I'm not even sure if I'm saying that right. Sounded right. Um, anyways, there is really no essential difference between the unlimited power of the democratic state and the unlimited power of the autocrat. The idea that carries away our demagogues and their supporters. The idea that the state can do whatever it wishes and nothing should resist the will of the sovereign people has done more evil, perhaps, than the Caesar mania of degenerate princelings. The fact that politicians pretend that votes provide approval for a candidate's agenda remain a convenient fiction for candidates, especially presidential ones, who despite routinely garnering votes from under 30% of the eligible voters and under 20% of the population overall, claim the election proves they have the approval of the quote-unquote the people. So I, I, I hope you guys enjoyed that one. I, I, I certainly did. I thought that was really good. It was a really, it's just... Guys, ladies and gentlemen, the vast majority of people don't vote. So is it really right to have one group of people, one tiny group of people, forcing everyone else to live a, a certain way? Is that really okay? I don't think it is. I don't think that it's okay for one group of people who don't even know what they're talking about most of the time, who in many cases... Okay, and I'm not I'm not talking about not ref referencing you guys. If you guys decided to vote, look, that's your personal decision. Okay, and in the end, you guys, if you're here, you guys are much much a cut above, I would say, the average people, right? I would say you guys are here. You guys are coming here. You guys are getting educated. You guys are learning about all this stuff. You're not the average person, but the average person doesn't even know what they really want in life. The average person has no idea how to best run a nation. They don't know anything about economics. In fact, most of the time, they can't even manage their own personal finance as well. They spend every dime that they make. The average voter, ladies and gentlemen, justifies all kinds of things, egregious abuses of power that effectively the government creates and engages in. It's, it's not okay. But that said, ladies and gentlemen, before we hop into the next article, I want to do the affiliate programs and get those out of the way so we don't have to worry about them anymore. So let's go ahead and get those out of the way real quick. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are interested in the idea of controlling the source of your income, there's many ways in which you can do this, okay? You could do it with Forex trading and there you can do it with you know, email copywriting. You can sell your skills to write e copywriting for other companies. You can do uh, coding, all sorts of stuff. There's tons of ways of becoming financially free, whether you want to teach someone else your skill, that you have a specialized skill, 
whether you want to create courses, whether you want to do consulting work, whether you maybe you don't want to do anything. Maybe you just want to sell your skills. Maybe you, you really like doing CAD work or you really like doing graphic design work and you just want to sell your skill set and allow people to pay you to do work for them. Whatever it is that you want to do, and I know those are only a couple of options and, and literally almost an unlimited list of ways of becoming financially free, what, but whatever it is you want to do, ladies and gentlemen, you need a valuable skill. And I say this all the time, but look, regardless of the, of the condition of the economy, whether it's positive or negative, we all should be reinvesting in our own human capital, in our own skills. We should always be keeping our still skills up to date and current, and we should always be reinvesting in learning new skills that makes us even more valuable. So ladies and gentlemen, if you're interested in that, then you need to go to Skillshare.com. Ladies and gentlemen... Skillshare.com is going to give you two weeks free for the subscription and ultimately they're going to give you access to thousands upon thousands of really high quality courses. So for those of you guys who don't know what Skillshare is, it's basically a platform where you go and you get lots and lots of different uh, courses and stuff. There's tons of courses out there. It's one big massive library of courses and whatnot. And there's all different kinds of courses. Some courses you might like better than others. But it's a really great resource for you guys, and it's going to be, there's all kinds of courses on there, ladies and gentlemen. It's it, it really is great. I mean, I have personally used it for website design, email copywriting, I've used it for YouTube ads, all kinds of stuff. I mean, they've even got stuff on there for how to fly drones. I mean, how cool is that? And also coding, yeah, I mean... They got tons of stuff for coding. If you're interested in trading Forex or, or futures or options, you can find courses on there for that. But there's all kinds of stuff out there. The platform itself is really solid. It's really great. And they've got tons of great stuff out there. So if you want to learn a new skill, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great it's a great place to go. And I think we all should be doing that. So if you're interested in that, go check them out. Go click on the link below. It is an affiliate link. You'll be supporting the show and you'll get access to a lot of really great educational content. It's, it's going to be, it's really good stuff, ladies and gentlemen. So go check it out if that's what, you, if you're interested in it. Speaking of Forex trading, if you guys are interested in learning the art in the skill of trading and you want to become financially free by trading currencies and all kinds of stuff, then go check out Tier 1 Trading. Ladies and gentlemen, Tier 1 Trading is an absolutely amazing coaching platform. In my opinion, they are the number one coaching platform that, that's out there. They are gonna, they, Their education is rock solid. They are not just going to teach you guys how to trade one particular strategy or anything of the sort. They're going to teach you how to ultimately come up with a strategy that fits your personality. They're going to teach you how to implement that in the markets. And then how to, how to basically they're going to teach you how you can come up with your own strategies so that you can trade and you can become financially free in the markets. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's very unique because there's a ton of people out there who only want to teach you a strategy, a strategy that they came up with. And while fundamentally there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, what it does is it, it really sets up the trader for failure because in the end, I could give you the most successful strategy in the world and you guys would never be, you wouldn't be able to follow it. You wouldn't follow it and ultimately you would ruin it and, and, and you would end up losing money. Why? Because you don't have a belief system in it, right? It's all about the belief. When it comes to trading, it's all about psychology. It's all about trading mentality. And it's all about the belief in that system. If you have no belief in the system, when the system starts to lose money and every system goes through a drawdown, right? Every system loses money. Well, when that happens, because you didn't create it, because you didn't test it over historical data, because you didn't do the necessary work, you're never going to actually continue to trade it because you don't really know 
whether the strategy is successful or not, whether you were lied to or not. Look, there's no such thing as a strategy that wins 100% of the time. There just isn't. So ladies and gentlemen, if you're interested in Forex trading, they're not going to teach you just a strategy. They are literally going to teach you the skill that you need to come up and create your own strategy. And that is really significant. It really is. I can't stress it enough. Guys, the the, the coaches there, Akil Stokes, Jason Grayson, Charles Miles, they're absolutely amazing. They're not going to turn you down the wrong path. They're going to teach you technical analysis. They're going to teach you how to backtest a strategy, how to come up with a strategy. With regards to a trading plan, they're going to teach you advanced pattern recognitions and all kinds of stuff. It's really, really great. And even money management, which really, if you want to learn, once you've gotten a consistently profitable strategy down, money management is what's going to accelerate the growth of your account. If done properly, of course. So anyways, guys, if you're interested in Forex trading, go check them out. They're absolutely amazing and it's really good. Guys, Forex trading is one of the number one ways that I love to become financially free. It's something I'm working on myself. So I highly recommend learning the skill of Forex trading. But ladies and gentlemen, it's a great skill to learn. If you're interested, go check them out. That said, last but certainly not least, if you are interested in getting that hedge against inflation, building up your a portfolio of assets that will rise with inflation. We talk about inflation all the time, right? What is inflation? Inflation is the increase in the monetary supply. Once it gets circulated into the economy, it actually can cause monetary devaluation, which is the increase in price, the general prices, okay? And we talk about that stuff all the time. And in the end, ladies and gentlemen, the one way to get a hedge against it is to own assets, assets that are going to rise with inflation. Now, you can own certain type of products like cigarettes and canned goods and things of that nature if you really want to. You can own that kind of stuff. And in an apocalyptic kind of world, that those things may come in handy. But if you're not interested, if you don't believe in the apocalyptic type of situation and you just want to have a insurance policy, like I said, assets that are going to rise with inflation, then consider precious metals. You know, you can own real estate and Bitcoin, but let's be honest, Bitcoin's really expensive and complicated for most people. And it's so complicating that most people don't really understand it, don't want to engage in it, right? Real estate, again, is even more expensive than, than cryptocurrencies, but it is actually simplistic to understand, but it's out of the realm and out of the reach for most people. However, precious metals does offer some great opportunities such as silver, right? Silver is a great precious metal that is not only simple to understand for the most part, at least I feel like it is, it is also easy to get involved with because it's so cheap. It's so inexpensive. The vast majority of people can easily afford to buy one coin, at least, at bare minimum. It's not that expensive. So ladies and gentlemen, if you want to get that hedge against inflation, precious metals, in particular silver, is my favorite method of doing it. So that said, ladies and gentlemen, if that's something you're interested in, there is a company called Money Metals Exchange, and they have a program right now, a referral program, where if you're a new customer, you haven't purchased them from them before, you go and you and actually make a purchase, you mention my name at the checkout, then not only will you get a free silver coin, but I will get a free silver coin as well. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a great program. Not only do you get to increase your portfolio, but I get to as well. I love these programs because we both benefit in one. And they're absolutely great. So if you guys want that extra bump in your portfolio, you want to get that free silver coin, 
than in a, you're a new customer, go check out Money Metals Exchange. I've bought stuff from Money Metals Exchange many times. They're absolutely amazing. They're, you guys are not going to be disappointed. They're, they, they offer a very, very good service. And if you want, they'll even allow you to sell coins back to them in those cases. Now, I've never personally done that, but if you're interested in that, check that out too. So ladies and gentlemen, if you're interested in, in increasing your silver holdings, okay, you're interested in building that hedge against inflation, then go check out Money Metals Exchange. If you're a new customer, mention my name and we'll both get free silver coins and it'll be great. All right, let's go ahead and jump in right into the next article. Guys, the next article is called No Matter How You Vote, Politicians Don't Represent You. This was published in 2018 by Ryan McMakin on the, at Mises.org. If you guys haven't figured it out already, I actually really like Ryan McMakin a lot. He has a lot of really great articles and stuff to read. So I, I have been talking quite a bit about his articles recently, but let's go ahead and get into it. Oh, by the way, they have a podcast called Radio Rothbard. If you're interested in that, Ryan McMakin and Tho Bishop basically get up there and talk about politics and stuff of that nature. So if you're interested in that, go check that out as well. And by the way, that wasn't an affiliate program or anything of the sort. I just, I really like their podcast. I listen to it myself. So if you guys are interested in that, then, then go check it all right, one of the most foundational assumptions behind modern democracy is that the elected officials somehow represent the interests of those who elect them. Advocates for the political status quo flog this position repeatedly, claiming that taxation and the regulatory state are all morally legitimate because the voters are represented. Even conservatives, who often claim to be for small government, often oppose radicalism of any kind, such as secession, on the grounds that political resistance movements such as the American Revolution, are only acceptable when there is taxation without representation. Yeah, because despite what many uh, Republicans or quote-unquote conservatives think, um, they're really not conservative. You know, they're, they're, they're just, they're, they're really not. They're, they're, <laughs> despite what they think, they're really not. You know, conservatives and Republicans have been moving more and more progressive, more and more to the left of big government and things like that for quite some time now. Not to say that there aren't conservatives out there who aren't actually conservative. There are. It's just the vast majority of them, I really question whether they are or not. Anyways, that said, the implication being that since the United States holds elections every now and then, no political action outside of voting and maybe a little sign waving is allowed. This position, however, rests on the idea that elected officials are truly representative. If taxation with representation makes government legitimate, as some argue, then we must first establish that the government's claim of representation are believable. On a theoretical level, Gerard Casey has already cast serious doubt on these claims. Casey draws on the work of Hannah Pitkin, who admits it is plausible that perhaps representation in politics is only a fiction, a myth-forming part of the folklore of our society. Or perhaps representation must be redefined to fit our politics. Perhaps we must simply accept the fact that what we have been calling representative government is in reality just party competition for office. After all, as Casey points out, representation in the private sector usually means there is an agent principal relationship in which the agent is legally bound to attempt to represent the material interests of a clearly defined person or group of people. Clearly, this does not describe political representation. Not only is it unclear what the material interests of the voters as a group are, but the supposed agent in the relationship, the elected official, is not legally bound to pursue the interests of the voters he supposedly represents. To conclude, therefore, that any specific voter has consented to, say, a tax increase because his representative approved it is an extremely sketchy endeavor at best. Nor is there any reason for us to expect that such a scheme of representation could possibly be meaningful under modern conceptions of representative government and democracy. Neither the system itself nor the sorts of people who run for office give us any reason to believe in the viability of such a system. 
two ways representation doesn't work. Specifically, there are two ways that the real world political representation doesn't fit the popular notions of how it all works. First of all, even if a politician wanted to faithfully represent the people within his constituency, this would be impossible. It is impossible because the politicians can't know the views of the whole population within his constituency. And it's impossible because the more diverse a constituency becomes, the more unlikely it is that any legislation can be crafted to serve the interests of everyone. Secondly, we must not fall into the trap of assuming that political representatives even try to respond to the political desires of the district voters. The idea that government coercion is made legitimate through political representation leans heavily on the idea that politicians adhere to a delicate model of political representation in which they try to advance or protect the interests of their constituents. Unfortunately, this is a bad assumption. Casey illustrates that a political representation does not work on a theoretical level, but let us be practical types for a few moments and imagine that we could, in theory, put together a constituency of people with similar economic, cultural, and religious interests. We could then at least entertain the idea that it might be possible to represent this group. That is, with a constituency that is highly homogenous, we could at least make a claim that we can understand and pursue the interests of the group. But even if this is our standard, do such legislators even exist? Limiting our analysis to the United States, we might find examples in some small cultural homogenous areas. This might be true at the level of a county commission or in the legislature of a small state like New Hampshire where legislators represent only a few thousand people or uh, per district. At the congressional level, however, where a single district typically includes hundreds of thousands of people, claims of homogeneity are obviously nonsense, and the larger the constituency, the worse it gets. As Francis Lee and Bruce Oppenheimer note in their book, Sizing Up the Senate, large states will encompass more political interests than small states, all other things being equal. Although small population does not guarantee homogeneity, large population does result in heterogeneity. It logically follows, then, that a more heterogeneous population is unlikely to have a political representative who actually shares many of their ideological views. In his book, Congressional Representation and Constituents, Brian Frederick concludes, An expanding constituency size is not an insubstantial contribution to House members' level of ideological divergence from their constituents. In smaller, ideologically cohesive constituencies, it is easier for legislators to satisfy the policy desires of the citizenry. The growth in House district popula populations seems to have increased the distance between the representative and constituents of the area of policy representations. Consequently, it's not surprising that once we get to the level of the U.S. Senate, representatives show virtually no congruence with the ideologies of the people they're supposed to represent. In his empirical study of representation, political scientist Michael Barber writes, Senators' preferences diverge dramatically from the preferences of the average voter in their state. The degree of divergence is nearly as large as if voters were randomly assigned to a senator. Naturally, this can be affected by factors other than mere heterogeneity of the population such as the need for candidates to cultivate relationships with those who can provide campaign funds. Nevertheless, the impossibility of representing the interests of such a large population drives a legislator to pick and choose whose interests he decides to listen to. In the case of the Senate, Barbara finds those who do get represented are often the constituents who write checks and attend fundraisers. You see, that very right there, ladies and gentlemen, is part of the oligarchy that we've talked about many times on the show, that basically the reason that your vote doesn't matter, the reason that democracy doesn't work, is because really the people that you elect, they're actually, rep they're not representing you, they're representing the people who pay them money. 
okay? Those who write checks for their campaigns, those who are there for their fundraisers, those are the people that they pick up the phone, the, the politicians pick up the phone for. They don't pick up the phone for you and me. And again, maybe you've been an individual who's been lucky enough to have the phone picked up, but the vast majority of people are not in that case. You call a politician, most likely you're going to get an automated message, maybe a secretary if you're lucky. You see, they don't represent you. And how can we claim that we have a representative government if our representatives don't actually even represent us? How can we claim that democracy and republics are superior when the politicians rule based on who's giving them money? Big corporations, right? Mass media, big tech companies, car manufacturing corporations, you name it. Big corporations are the ones that give them money. They have lobbyists. They have lobbying groups. You know, every time it's tax season and or every time ta new tax laws come out, the tax lobbying group descends on Washington trying to get in all of their agenda into the, these policies, into these laws that are being written so that they can effectively create demand for their services by saying, well, you need us in order to get use the loopholes to avoid the taxes. Ladies and gentlemen, this happens all the time. The government is not representative of you and I. The government is representative of those who write checks and attend fundraisers. That is the oligarchy. Big governments getting in bed with big corporations. So your vote doesn't really matter. Ladies and gentlemen, it just doesn't. But anyways, that said, but it's not necessary to conclude that legislators listen to wealthy donors for cynical reasons, even if a senator under these circumstances wanted to represent all 5 million of his constituents, as would be the case in a medium-sized state like Minnesota or Colorado. It's important to reiterate that this is simply an impossible task under the delegate model of representation. You see, ladies and gentlemen, in the end, the politician is only serving their own self-interest. The representative is only serving their own self-interest. And it's impossible for them to vote on behalf of millions upon millions of people. So why bother trying? They don't even know what that would be. So what they do is they vote on behalf of the people who are giving them money. That's usually how it happens. That's how it works. You may not like it. I certainly don't like it, but it's the way that it is. Trustees versus delegates. Up to this point, we've been assuming that elected officials imagine themselves largely as delegates of the populations they represent. This, after all, is the assumption behind the basic framework of Madisonian political theory, that different socioeconomic and cultural groups will be represented in Congress by elected officials, and these different groups will pursue their own interests, thus providing checks and balances against each other. But what if elected officials don't view themselves this way? What if they view themselves as trustees whose job it is to do what's best for the people in their district regardless of what the voter preferences actually are? Those who have worked with elected officials will see little novelty in this suggestion. If I may be permitted a personal anecdote, I will note that in my days working with state legislators, it was not uncommon to be told by a legislator that he was torn as to whether vote to vote in a way the voters want or to do the right thing. The right thing in the mind of a legislator is simply w with that which comports to his or her personal ideology. If the legislator chose to overrule what he or she perceived to be the opinion of the people, then at least on that day, the legislator was acting as a trustee rather than actually as a delegate. There are numerous studies suggesting that such behavior is hardly rare. The political science literature showing a disconnect between the votes of legislators and constituent opinion.
has been mounting for years. One particular interesting study is a 2017 paper from John Matsusake in which he concluded when legislator preferences differed from district opinion on an issue, legislators voted congruent with district opinion only 29% of the time. The data does not show a reliable connection between congruence and competitive election, term limits, campaign contributions, or media attention. The evidence is most consistent with the assumption of a citizen candidate model that legislators vote their own preferences. There is, of course, no such thing as a district opinion, but the general idea is clear enough. When confronted with how to vote on an issue, a legislator, at least in Matsusake's study, usually votes according to his own ideological views, even when he suspects a majority of his own voters prefer otherwise. While it's certainly possible to defend legislators who vote according to personal principle on various grounds, we cannot also claim that this sort of governance is a representative system in line with popular notions of how political representation is equivalent to voter consent for various political agendas. If elected officials are in the habit of voting to suit their own ideologies, even when it means overriding the ideological preferences of many voters, then it's hard to see how we can also call this representative or a system that transmits consent from the voters to their political representatives. And yet, in spite of all the evidence that elected officials neither know the preference of voters nor vote in accordance with them, we continue to be told that governments must be respected and obeyed because they have legitimacy granted to them by the fact that they are democratic and representative. For centuries, this myth of representation has served to, to quash opposition to government abuse and to bolster claims that submission to government is voluntary. It's time to abandon the myths. And ladies and gentlemen, that is the last article that we had for the day. A pretty good one overall. You know, basically more, but just kind of reinforces the idea of what I was saying, what I've been saying for a long time, that representatives, politicians, they don't vote for you. Okay, they're not voting for you. They're not effectively serving on your behalf. What they do is they vote for themselves. They vote for their own ideologies. They vote for what's in their own self-interest. And on top of that, they vote with accordance to who pays them to vote a particular way. So in the end, I don't know what's going to happen in this political election, but it's very clear that regardless of who wins, whether it's Biden, whether it's Trump, you know, whoever actually inks out a win here, you know, it, it really largely does not matter. In the end, they're not, you know, your desires, your ideology is not going to be voted on. The, the representatives, the president, whoever you're voting on, they're going to do whatever is in their own self-interest. They're not interested in serving you. Okay? And on top of that, ladies and gentlemen, the wheels that are in motion with regards to all the debt, all the spending, with regards to the government taking more power, I personally believe is unstoppable at this point. The government has become so bloated. The people have become so indoctrinated and blind. We have lost on all, all fronts. The fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, there's only one way that you're going to get out of this. There's only going to be one way that you can insulate yourself and ultimately protect you and your families. And it's not voting. It's taking control over the source of your income. I, I say that all the time. I'm like a broken record. I know. I know. Many of you might even be annoyed by it. Okay, that's fine. You can listen to another podcast if you hate it that much. But I'm going to speak my mind. That's what this whole podcast is about. I think that financial freedom is the answer to everything here. 
You're voting, you know, with your feet by ultimately leaving the country if you feel that that is necessary would be the ultimate vote. A vote that would inevitably be for yourself. And ladies and gentlemen, that's what I think we all need to do. We need to vote for ourselves by taking control of the source of our income and ultimately relying on nobody else but ourselves for our livelihoods. And then if the country does continue to go down this path in a bad way, becomes more socialistic, more communistic, then, hey, we can easily leave if need be. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, I know a lot and I've been looking for years and researching for a very, very long time into, you know, expatting, leaving the country, maybe even giving up my own citizenship. I think I'd have a hard time doing that, but if necessary, I, I would consider it. I've been doing a lot of different research on tons and tons of different countries to go to. Panama's looking pretty good right now. Uh, you know, I like the idea, the, the Isle of Man, if you want a little bit more access to, say, the UK and stuff, that looks pretty cool. I don't know all the ins and outs of stuff. It's not something I've ever done before, but I'm doing a massive amount of research on it. I listen to a lot of people on the on the subject, on the topic. I have long since held, probably literally four year, four to five years ago, that in the end, the system is, is unfixable, that it can't really be fixed, and that ultimately the only answer is to just leave. That's what I truly believe. I am very much a separatist in that sense, which I think is actually very in line with the original founding fathers of our country. With the original Americans that came here. Well, they weren't really Americans at the time. They were, uh, you know, British expats, right? They were people from England who, who were running away from religious persecution and things of that nature. But ladies and gentlemen, make no mistake, they were separatists nonetheless. They didn't feel that they could reform the system, so they left. Now, many of you are probably going to be arguing with me and say, Well, Matthew... There is no land like that. You know, there's no other land in country that you can go to. There's no land that doesn't have a government these days. Okay, all right. You know, if you want to take that opinion, that's okay. Ultimately, while you are correct, if that's where you're coming from, that there isn't a, a land that has been unclaimed by some kind of government today, that, that is true. I do think that you can provide yourself a lot of freedom by going to maybe a land that is freer, both socially and economically. And ultimately, you can pit one government against the other. How you do this is you adopt something called flag theory. It's been called flag theory. It's been called being a nomad capitalist, right? It's called nomadic wealth. It goes by a lot of different names. But what it effectively is, is you go to a country, you buy a land, you get a, a, a residency, maybe a, a, a citizenship, a passport. You, you have a bank account there with money in the country's currency right? And like I said, you own real estate and then you move on to another country and you do the same thing. You rinse and repeat. And then you Airbnb all the, the real estate that you're, that you own in these countries that you're not really using to kind of help mitigate the costs and as invest as an investment as well. Okay. And you do this over and over and over again. Before you know it, you are a citizen of many countries. You have land, you have property in many countries You've got bank accounts, you've got assets in many countries. It's a really, really cool idea. And that's my ultimate goal. That's my end goal. My goal is to build an empire. In a way, I talk about monarchy. My goal is to become, build an empire that I am king of with regards to my own assets, my own finances, with regards to my own income and all that, my own business. 
And ladies and gentlemen, I would invite you to become a, a monarchy in your own right. I would invite you to create your own empire, your own business that you and you alone control. That you can control the brand, the destiny of it, the direction of it. You can control what you do, what you don't do. I would highly encourage you guys to go down that path. It's the only way to be truly free in my personal opinion. You're not going to be free by voting. It's not going to matter whether Trump or Biden get elected. Yeah, they're, gonna, they're both going to do stuff that isn't necessarily going to benefit us. Can anyone really say that the China trade war benefited us by enacting tariffs that made it harder for U.S. corporations? That made it harder for U.S. citizens to purchase products because those tariffs made the products more expensive? Can we really claim that it actually benefited us? It ended up costing us of jobs because the reaction of China resulted in counter tariffs that ended up causing businesses to go out, that ended up causing thousands of people to get laid off. This actually did happen, ladies and gentlemen. Can we really say it benefited the nation on the whole? No, it made products more expensive for American citizens to buy. It Thousands of people went unemployed as a result of these tariffs. And in the end, we made it harder for our businesses to operate because now they have to spend more money than what they otherwise would have. You know, they were buying, they were spending money with those particular companies in China because it was the cheapest for them to do. And it, it, it maximized profits. This is healthy. It's healthy for jobs. It's healthy for the corporation. But if we here are preventing that from happening by raising the prices artificially, well, I mean, come on. Of course, it's going to have negative side effects, not just for the citizens, but for the corporations that now have to spend more money. Of course, it's going to have negative side effects in the sense that the country in question, China, is going to react negatively. They're going to enact their own tariffs as a countermeasure. The tariffs don't affect the politicians. The tariffs don't affect the ruling class. You know who the tariffs affect? The everyday citizens, business owners, peep the people. That's who it affects. Can you honestly say that it was positive? It wasn't positive. And that's just one example. Neither one of these candidates is interested in free markets, freedom, and liberty. Neither one of them are. Neither, yeah, maybe one is better than the other. I certainly do view Trump as being marginally better than Biden. But again, marginally, on the smallest level. Not by much. And in the end, even if there was a candidate who was like a libertarian, free market, whatever, which would never happen. But even if there was, I, I still, I don't believe, I wouldn't vote because it wouldn't matter. I have learned that it doesn't matter who gets elected. The system is, it's not like the president is a king and has the power to change things. The president doesn't have that kind of power. The president is actually part of the very system the very oligarchy type of system that exists. It just, it, it can't be changed. I, I don't believe that it can. And I don't mean to be cynical. I don't mean to be that way. I, I just, I don't mean to be negative. I'm just, I feel like I'm just, I'm trying to be realistic here. I just don't think that it, it's going to be changed. So, but what can be changed is us becoming financially free. So instead of worrying, worrying about what's going to happen, instead of thinking that Trump is the savior and is going to save the country and you know, Biden's like the devil, and he's going to kill the country. Instead of worrying about that, and trust me, we are all trained to worry about that. We've all been indoctrinated in that way. 
I find myself today reading articles that are talking about the election, talking about the cheating that's going on, glitches in software systems, all kinds of stuff. And I feel myself getting tense. I feel myself getting, you know, angry, even though I don't care, even though I don't care. And I find myself getting upset by the whole thing. Now, maybe it's just the idea that they're cheating and I don't like that. But the fact remains is both sides cheat. Just one side cheated more than the other. But ladies and gentlemen, please listen to me. It's not going to be natural. Okay? You're not doing your health or your family any service by, by stressing out over the election results. You're, you're not doing anyone any good. Stop focusing on it. Stop reading articles. Stop watching the news. Start focusing on your own human capital, your own self-interest, start controlling the source of your income, start focusing on your family and spend time with your family and the relationships in your family and all that good stuff. Stop focusing on the politicking of that kind of stuff, ladies. Just stop. You're not going to change it one way or the other, regardless of how much you obsess over it. And you know, I'm going to say this real quick. I mean, I am a Christian, right? Uh, I've made that very clear on the show and I'm not a Bible beater which is why I don't like to talk a ton about that, about my faith on the show. I do talk about it and I do talk about the things that I believe in, of course, but like, I'm not a Bible beater and I don't want, you know, I don't want to beat people over the head with the Bible. If you're not a Christian, while I obviously don't agree with you because I am, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not going to say you're a terrible, evil person or anything of the sort, you know, it doesn't mean we can't agree on many other things. But what I will say is I was attending church the other day and well, there was something that was that was mentioned in the service there and that I thought was very, very, very good. It's basically saying that everything that happens is within God's will. And everything that happens is for the glory and for the benefit of God and for his followers. Now, this doesn't mean that that good thing that, that doesn't mean that what happens is good. But in the grand scheme of things, you see, God has a very long, long perspective here. He's got a very long time horizon, one that we can't even fathom. Our lives on earth are, are like blips in the eyes of God on the timeline, right? And the fact of the matter, ladies and gentlemen, is that nothing that is happening is happening randomly. God has allowed it to happen for a reason. And it's going to, in the long run, benefit God and his and his followers. Right? It has long run benefits. So if you are a Christian, you know, if you do believe in that stuff, then take heart and know that everything is for the glory of God and that will ultimately benefit us as well even if we can't see it in this moment. Now, a really great example of a guy who lived in the gulages during the Soviet Union. And uh he was a Russian, of course. And he actually, he survived and he ended up writing a book and he ended up uh, saying that his time in the gulages, he looks back at it as a blessing. That it actually, it gave him perspective. It nourished his soul. I mean, the gulages, the prison camps. I don't know if you guys realize how terrible it really was in the gulages. It was pretty bad. For someone to say that it was a blessing and, you know, and that it would nourish his soul sounds insane. But in the end, I can kind of relate a little bit. While I was never put in any kind of a situation like that, anything anywhere near as horrible, I did live through an eviction and it was awful. I look, I now look back at the eviction as a blessing in disguise. I didn't see it as a blessing at the time. 
But it really was because it gave me the ability to see, it gave me a perspective to see life differently. I wouldn't be doing this podcast if it hadn't been for that, that experience in my life. I wouldn't be doing anything that I'm doing today if it hadn't been for that experience in my life. It changed me. And bad stuff is oftentimes what is used to change us, to open our eyes, to give us the perspective that we need in order to accomplish things that we want in our life. We don't always like it, and most of the time we don't like the things that we have to live through. The disciplinary things that God uses or, you know, however you want to think about it, the bad things that happen, we don't ever want those things to happen. They're uncomfortable, they're painful. But they are, ladies and gentlemen, what is required in order to truly achieve our full potential in this world. So look at the trials and tribulations that you go through. Try to look at them in a different perspective, with that kind of perspective. And how it's actually affecting you and changing your mindsets and, and whatnot and, and things of that nature. And I think, I think that is very helpful, especially during this time of uncertainty. So, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to be it for the episode. Hey, if you like this episode, please make sure to like and subscribe. Hit the like button wherever you are. Smash that like button and smash the subscribe button. Follow me wherever you're at. If you love what I'm doing here, then please consider sharing the show. Share this podcast wherever you guys are. If you're on Twitter, Facebook, wherever, make sure to hit the share button. Help me spread this message of financial freedom to as many people as we can get to listen. Ladies and gentlemen, it is truly a empowering message. It really is. So please, if you love what I'm doing here, then please share the show and, and help me get this show and this message out there because I think it could really benefit a lot of people's lives. I think it's going to free a lot of people from the thought process that there's nothing they can do and that, that, you know, it, I think it will help to get people to, instead of focusing on external things that they have no control over, but to, they can focus on themselves and turn negative situations into positive ones. So, ladies and gentlemen, I think it's incredibly empowering. We are the masters of our fate. We are the captains of our soul, right? We choose our destiny. We create our destiny. You know, that I truly believe that. And ladies and gentlemen, if you do as well, then please share the show. Also, if you want to support the show, there are a, a few ways that you guys can do. You know, first and foremost, you can leave me a rating and review on iTunes. Ladies and gentlemen, leaving a rating and review on iTunes is incredibly important because it helps get my show on the map. It helps get my show on the rankings on iTunes, and that gets the show more visibility. So if you guys want to help me grow the show, then please go give me a rating review on iTunes. That could be very helpful. Also, on top of that, you can give a donation. If you guys love the message, you want to help me grow this message, you want to help me to spread this message, you want to help continue to provide me the ability to come in here every single week and produce this great content for you guys and provide value to you guys, then please consider giving a donation to the show. And again, you know, that will be used for effectively helping me continue to come in here, provide great value for you guys and produce this show. And it will also help with spreading this message of financial freedom. So if you guys are looking to support me, then please consider doing those things. That being said, ladies and gentlemen, that will be the end of the episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, if you guys will do all that stuff for me, I'll see you guys in the next episode. As always, know the risks, plan accordingly, and have a great day.